This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 55, recorded on April 8, 2016. I'm your host, Tim Cray, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-host, Dr. Neelay Shaw. Welcome, Neelay. Happy to be here. And Dr. Terry Streeby. Welcome, Terry. Hello, everyone. Good to have you all back. And uh, we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Crystal Lewis. Welcome, Crystal. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Maybe you can tell us what your position is, yes. both at in academic now and in, in industry. Uh, so I currently am um, a medical director and project lead at um, Merrimack Pharmaceuticals, which is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and then have an academic affiliation that I've continued at Texas Children's. Um, as an assistant professor, but now in a part-time, um, part-time manner. Uh, today we're going to talk mainly about, I think, well, whatever we all want to talk about, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, your career pathway is what you presented today, and I think it's quite interesting, and, and I think it gives us an opportunity to talk about industry and, and academics and the differences and drug development and that sort of thing. Patients and families expect us to bring different therapeutics to cancer patients, and do so efficiently and work with industry and companies and but I think it's also very confusing what the role is of academics, what the role is of industry, how we work together or don't work together, what some of the barriers are and from the you have a unique position now having a foot in both sides uh, simultaneously, which is unique. Uh, so I think it should make for some interesting discussion. But to start with, we want to talk a little bit about how you got here. What drives you? What drove you? What motivated you when you were growing up? What what brought you to medicine in general? What brought you to pediatrics, etc.? So, do you have any stories for us? Yes. <laughs> um, so the the funny part when I really sort of sit back and think about how I ended up in medicine to begin with is as we addressed a little bit today, uh, when I went to college, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, whether or not I wanted to end up in med school, whether or not I wanted to end up in law school, which is really why it's sort of the joint degree pathway. And then all of a sudden I look up one day and my college counselor is like, oh, you realize you're only like three classes shy of getting a dual degree. And I was like, and of course she would tell me that like my last semester of college so that I can't sit around and just do 12 hours and do basket weaving. <laughs> I actually got to study like the rest of it. <laughs> Um, but at the end, I, I enjoyed both and I enjoyed it a lot. And I had a biology teacher who said, Hey, there's this really interesting program at UNC where they do a, um, an eight week course that's essentially like your first semester of med school during the summer. And I really think since you're having trouble sort of making the decision about what you want to do, it's probably worth going out and doing that. Um, and so I went out and I did it and I, I really loved it and I enjoyed it. And I was like, you know what? If, if the rest of med school and potentially medicine is like this, I think I'm, going to be interested in pursuing it. And oh my gosh, it's clearly got to be less reading than law school. Huh. <laughs> Little did I know. Um, and so came back and, and made the decision to go to med school after that. How I ended up in PT Monk, strangely enough, I don't have that moment. I can't say it was a patient. I can't say it was, you know, a TV show or whatever. Uh, when I 
again, go back and talk to my friends about that time. They were like, it was like when you came back, that's what you just said you were going to do, um, which is kind of a little bit of an interesting path because who says, I want to grow up to be a pediatric oncologist if you've never really had that experience. But um, it was just what I decided was going to be uh, where I ended up. And I do remember actually in one of my med school interviews, Somebody was like, well, you've decided that this is what you want to do. How do you know that you don't want to do adult oncology? And I'm like, huh, because I don't really like adults. They kind of <laughs> And I'm like, hmm, that's one of those where my filter was broken. I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> but uh, it's just kind of, I knew that pediatrics was going to be that intent, and um, PSOC was the next step. I was lucky enough when thinking about residency programs. It was kind of a decision of, um, knowing that I wanted to go into subspecialty training, I actually wanted to choose a program uh, that allowed for both their graduates to have gone on to general peds and to subspecialty training. Um, I think really to be a good specialist, is being, it's helpful to be a good generalist. And so I wanted a program that kind of put out sort of a half and half, how I ended up in California. And then it was really thinking about what I wanted to do next as far as fellowship um, and Dr. Swordland, who was one of the attendings at the time, was like, oh, well, you know, I mean, that place in Houston, it's fairly good. You might want to think about going there, but he's like, Texas is scary. And then I was like, oh, but I went to college in Texas. <laughs> you know, what do you mean Texas is scary? Uh, and the UC program, I will admit, was great about allowing me to spend a month uh, during my residency training actually um, at Texas Children's to do it essentially as an elective rotation. Now, to be fair, our residency director um, <laughs> happens to be a pediatric oncologist. <laughs> that might have had something to do with it. Uh, but I spent a month out at, um, at TCH and had a phenomenal time. And uh, was like, okay, well, this looks like it'll be um, the next step. And then ended up there for fellowship and then was there uh, for about 10 years before making this now uh, dual split between the Boston area and Houston. And when? Well... When did you first sort of get a hint that you might like to be involved in the industry side? I have to say that was that was relatively late um, in the decision making process, only because uh, there isn't a lot of discussion about transition into industry that I think happens on, especially the pediatric side. But um, I'd almost say our part of the country. Again, I think if you're on the West Coast or you're on the East Coast where there's a lot stronger of an interaction and where really there are situations where it's completely set up within the programs that you can be in academics and have some industry affiliation or you've got an industry affiliation and you're still doing half a day of clinic per week where it's already kind of ingrained. I will admit, actually, at our company, we have an MGH fellow who comes and who spends time with us to be able to understand the workings behind how you actually do clinical trials and clinical trial design in an industry perspective. So really where it's ingrained, I think it's one thing. But it, but really, it, it wasn't a an interesting, or it wasn't something that was well-established that could be a next step. And then it was in the course of talking to um, not only other people, uh, really more so from a, a PhD kind of perspective who are like, oh, well, you know, we have um, medical people that we work with and then got recruited um, to a couple of different places and then kind of saying, well, oh my gosh, this might actually be a viable option um, is kind of how it all played out. But it wasn't something where it was like, oh, I'm absolutely going to make that transition. It was really kind of a split between are there other things um, that we could 
do a restructure within where my current environment was, do a restructure within potentially another academic institution, or um, continue to learn and restructure with working in, in industry. So with that, you you went out there, you were at that point in your career where you thought you could have a role with this company, which has been forward-thinking uh, about pediatrics. But you arrive, and they say, great, you we want you to be your medical director for all oncology, which is largely adult. <laughs> and here's a project that's largely adult. And so what, what were your original challenges there? What were your struggles? The original challenges and struggles, part of it is clearly the learning curve of you don't focus on adult cancers. And so really being able to learn the biology, physiology, and, and pathogenesis of what happens in different adult cancers is really kind of a starting point of, oh yeah, you really, it's like almost going back to med school again here at the beginning days of fellowship where you got to pull it out and sort of sit down and relearn about how all of that happens because it's clearly just not what you do every day. Um, but while it was definitely being introduced to that aspect of it, I think part of um, the appeal was it was also then being able to utilize what I do from a pediatric oncology perspective from the very beginning. So really kind of talking about, all right, you guys are in the midst of preclinical development. It looks like these particular pathways and these particular agents might be helpful in these diseases. Have we started looking or have we continued to look in ways that we can go ahead and investigate that from the beginning? I think part of the appeal of Merrimack to me was the fact that there was already discussion and already ongoing trials in peds. And for um, a relatively smallish biotech, that's actually almost a little bit unheard of. Um, and the fact that it was clearly going to be a focus, something that they were willing to say, okay, we're willing to actually invest more in. Part of it's just getting the leadership and direction to understand how we would integrate that and the things that we're already doing was a really, really appealing option of being able to say, okay, yeah, clearly there's some things that I'm going to have to learn. But my background, I think I can be able to help and utilize as you guys are continuing to kind of execute on this road already. And then in that same vein, the we in peds we we like to to focus on you know we enroll the majority of our patients we we do everything better than the adults do. Yes. With that, possi- <laughs> I'm, I'm going to offer that possibility. Is there anything that we could be learning from them, meaning adult oncology? I actually think that's a great question. Um, the interesting piece about what adult oncology has been able to do well is fundraise on a large scale. And not that PEDS doesn't do that well for the size of the pediatric oncology patient population as compared to the adult patient population, but when you actually look at the sheer dollar amount that organizations are able to bring in, it is mind-bogglingly impressive. And so the fact that... What kind of organizations and what kind of numbers? Well, so if you think about... Even the American Cancer Society. So if you think about what's happening with Susan G. Komen, if you think about really the big organizations, they do a lot of great work, and a lot of that great work takes money and infrastructure, but they've clearly already got that set up in how they operate and how they go out and fundraise and what they are able to bring back. And even from an American Cancer Society perspective, which does give money to pediatrics, the percentage of that is actually fairly small. Parents and parent organizations and fundraising groups within pediatrics do phenomenal jobs and I think have 
been great, especially in the last few years in these kind of hard economic times with getting a lot of labs over the hump. When they're having trouble getting NIH funding, the amount of parent support and group support that we've been able to get from groups has been fantastic. But if you actually look at sheer dollar amounts, uh, what's able to be brought in from an adult perspective is is actually um, it's actually pretty impressive. And with the exception of St. Jude. You know, <laughs> so, so here's the catch with St. Jude. I actually think when you step back and look at financially how they set it up, it's fairly impressive, right? Because at the end of the day, they're not going after big money donors. What they're doing is they're asking you to do a dollar for you're at Chili's and buy a tree. Or, you know, you're shopping at Williams-Sonoma and it's Christmas time. Do you run a roundup 75 cents? And people are far more willing to do a dollar here, 75 cents there. But if you're doing that across the country, that adds up. So I actually think their fundraising mechanism and how they do it on a day-to-day basis is actually great. Um, in talking to some of my colleagues who work with international uh, organizations that have done fundraising, a lot of them borrow the St. Jude's model. Um, for how they're able to make inroads within their communities and within their countries for not doing it as your large donors, but really going after the everyday person who's willing to give 75 cents, a dollar, five dollars. But if you're doing that far more frequently than somebody giving you a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars, that, that money's able to add up fairly quickly. So you mentioned that you're now part time at Texas Children's. How has that been in terms of your patients and trying to balance, oh, I'm in Boston now and I have patients though while I'm in Texas? So officially, all of my patients have been transitioned to uh, providers that are in, um, that are full-time within the TCH system. And I, I think that's, of course, the right thing to do. I mean, you've got to have ready access to medical care. Um, but I am also still exceedingly available, whether or not that's calls, whether or not that's emails. Um, when I am back in town, being able to see them either in clinic or if they're admitted to the hospital. So there's still that continuity um, that exists. I have, uh, you know, there's a patient who I take care of with Dr. Nocturne who actually lives overseas. And so there's still those things that you can do remotely, but they're everyday, honest-to-God care. You know, there were a couple patients who would send me an email, gosh, I'm having issues with the dates of my scans were scheduled. And I'm like, can't help you with that anymore. (laughs) But I think kind of for bigger issues, hey, we're concerned about this, or, you know, we're getting to a point where we're thinking about treatment um, alternatives. Those things are you're still able to do kind of remotely or when you're back in town. But really the day-to-day stuff is handled by my colleagues. So talk about, um, on the industry side, what it takes to get a project in pediatric, in the pediatric realm, because we really do want to focus on, on what that really involves. And, uh, you did speak a little to it in your seminar about, you know, sometimes we're doing it backwards, uh, and maybe we should be looking at pediatrics first. But what are, what are the challenges? What's the process? What should people know about why it's so hard? I think the process historically has been, for a large number of completely understandable reasons, when you're talking about adding new agents and new drugs into children as compared to adding new agents into new drugs into adults, people's risk tolerance with adults is far less than the new agent risk tolerance with a child. Um, And sometimes it's what one of my formal colleagues would say, you know, is 60 minutes kind of medicine. 
If you have something that goes wrong, but goes wrong in an adult patient, that's far easier for a lot of people to accept than if something were to go drastically wrong with a pediatric patient who were getting drugged for the first time. And so I think historically, the way that we all know that this has worked is typically drugs go through the adult process. You get what is a toxicity profile, and you think you get a better understanding of how the drug works, what populations it should work in, what are the things that you need to be on the lookout for, and then once you feel really, really comfortable with how things are going and or have a definitive market share, then it kind of loops back around to, well, how might this be helpful in peds? I think there are many of us who think that that's not necessarily the best approach. That at the end, if you're looking at populations, when you're looking, especially kind of phase one, phase two novel agents, you're looking at adults who have seen a lot of things, who've lived their lives, who have other comorbidities, and you're looking at pediatric patients who, outside of the fact that they are acutely ill, generally are fairly healthy patients who don't have a lot of other comorbidities and are not on a lot of other medications, and so become an actually I know this sounds awful, but cleaner population to really be able to assess your drugs in and what the toxicity profile potentially is in a patient population who, you know, unfortunately what they're dealing with is their cancer, but typically don't have heart disease, typically don't have cholesterol problems, typically don't have any of those other things that come into play when you're assessing what a toxicity profile might be in an older population. But I think it's a huge mind shift to go from feeling like as a company or an organization, you have a much greater understanding of your drug and its profile, and then you're going back to kids versus potentially starting in kids where you're learning about all that, and then have to roll it out into a bigger population. Um, And then I also think personally, if you talk about the numbers and what it would mean from kind of a a time to potentially being able to get drugs approved, when you're talking about Pizonk or we're a much smaller community, the FDA and other organizations realize you're not going to be able to do three, 4,000 patient studies because the patients just aren't there. You're going to have to be far more selective about your patient populations, which you're looking at for outcome measures and how things go, but that actually might be able to be done more efficiently starting in a pediatric population where you know those numbers are going to be far more manageable than potentially adult population where you go back to the other end. Are there the pluses and minuses to that? Absolutely. It's going to be a huge shift. It's going to be people being willing to take the risk of understanding that you're going to potentially be giving, or you're definitely giving, what could be potentially toxic agents to children and you don't have that profile, and that you're going to be learning along the way, and that unfortunately some things that we might not want to happen may actually happen because, again, you're exposing these agents to children and you haven't really seen what's happened on an adult perspective. Then you also have the back-end question that I think potentially becomes fair of, okay, now you've done it in a really uh, much more streamlined, homogenous population, and then you're going to transition over into an adult population, and do you potentially have a changing toxicity profile because you've now moved into adult population after having done it, and do things get modified on that end when you are talking about much larger patient populations versus having done it in the reverse? So I do definitely see kind of the pluses and minuses of both of those issues. I just think there are certain situations where really you should take a step back and look at the biology makes sense to be able to really assess this in a pediatric population first. That shouldn't automatically be off the table. 
But I think part of that, again, is having people who are willing to say, don't forget about our kids who are actually sitting at the table to say, you know what, at the end of the day, sure, that might make sense here. Sure, your market share may be great here, but really from a scientific, biologic, and long-term perspective, potential for patient impact is so much bigger if you're able to get it right in kids that why do them last? I think it's a great point, although we have to point out to our listeners there are federal regulations around this and the FDA you know, has rules and mm-hmm. so forth. And it does make sense that if you, if something's never been in a person, uh, and you're going to really start at low dose and kind of work your way up, that if you, you do that in a child, then there's going to be more children exposed to some therapeutic doses. Right. So the, the, I, I think the advantage of doing an adult first is you can get a, a general dose range where there's activity and that seems reasonable to then we're able to start in that dose range as opposed to having to go back over, you know, from the low doses on up. But, your points are very well taken about, um, you know, the healthiness of the kids and the lack of comorbidity and the potential for licensing a drug sooner and quicker because of a smaller patient population. So industry, take note. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but part of it becomes conversations. I think the FDA in the last couple of years has clearly been saying, what are things that we can potentially do differently? But I, but I think you're absolutely right. That's got to be balanced with your risk-benefit ratio and really forcing industry and companies and preclinical and clinical teams to really understand the science behind the drug. I think um, when you step back, sometimes there have been situations where there has been um, introduction of agents to the market, and then all of a sudden you're in the midst of your phase four testing or you're in the midst of large product use where all of a sudden things that were hints of safety signals, you're not seeing them until the back end. And so that, of course, does give you pause about, are you really sure that in our pediatric population, that's a great next step? But I think part of it is really taking a step back and truly understanding the biology and the activity of the agents that you're using. And then does that make sense for certain situations? And there are times when it's just going to make sense for certain disease populations and situations where maybe your first in man isn't first in adult, but is actually first in peace. That'd be great. So uh, along those lines, there's been uh, the care and the stick approach from the regulatory perspective and encouraging industry to think about peace. So the, the stick has been a, a mandate that as part of your development plan, you must include a rationale for, for that approach in a pediatric plan. The, the carrot most predominantly being the, the Creating Hope Act and these these fast-track vouchers, uh, to uh, which are meant to really engender further development for pediatric and for orphan diseases. And, you know, we're seeing some shifts, and I think that we're seeing some benefits to, to companies that have started with that inclination, like, like Merrimack, like uh, you know, Therapeutics. What else do you think that academia can do, that regulatory can do, or does it need to come from within industry to convince the larger pharma uh, organizations to, to really say, okay, this is this needs to not be something we're dragged to, but something that we actually value and, and want to participate in? I think it's going to have to be a little bit of all of that. Some organizations might unfortunately have to be dragging and screaming. (laughs) Just like a kid. (laughs) Knocked over the head. I think there are going to be some organizations that are willing to see the benefit and willing to uh, completely appreciate that at the end of the day, it's just the right thing to do. Um, Some of that is data that you're getting from your academic colleagues. 
But some of that is potentially participating in or encouraging investigator-initiated or investigator-sponsored trials in an earlier setting. But there also has to be the risk tolerance to do that. So, so I think it's kind of a fine line of A, getting pediatric people at the table to discuss the true risk tolerance to all of that. B, having your pharmacovigilance and safety people being comfortable in the assessment of your risk-benefit ratio in a pediatric population. Discussion from a regulatory and um, legal liability standpoint about how we actually make this all work. Are we following the regulations that already exist? Are there times where we need to ask our parent groups to actually go back to our senators and our congressmen and like we've done with with these acts, kind of adjust the system to kind of make it not just carrot stick beneficial, but ease, ease up with which to do. Um, so it, I don't think it's going to be a, a one check fits all, but I think it's a how do we work together with the institutions that are willing to do it? How do we support the groups that are willing to make this all come together? And then how do we convince those people that might be a little bit anxious that it's not a bad alternative um, to actually not think about our kids second, but to think about them either concurrently, if not first, in certain situations? I think there's also a lot of education that needs to happen. People don't really know about kids. Let alone, you know, the cancers for one thing, but I, I'm in viral therapy and immune therapy field, and I gave a talk once that I was promoting, you know, kids, uh, that we should be including children. And one of the attendees got up and asked a question. Yeah, but the children's immune systems are, you know, they're so vulnerable. We can't be doing immunotherapies in them. And there's like nothing that could be more opposite for the truth. You know, yeah. they're the most robust <laughs> immune systems around. It's the adults whose immune systems are waning. So, you know, I think there's just a lot of misinformation, even mm-hmm. though most people were a kid once. Yeah. In transitioning from academia to industry, what do you see as your end goal or what impact do you hope to most make in your new career? Be, it sounds kind of hokey, but being able to get novel agents to children faster. I, right now, the process just takes too long. We actually did something relatively recently at a company meeting um, that was, at first, it was sort of like, where, where are we going with this? But um, we had a panel discussion. So we had uh, one of our partners who had um, ovarian cancer a few years ago. Uh, we had one of the people from our commercial division whose uh, spouse had died of pancreatic cancer. And then I was the third party on this lovely panel, <laughs> the pediatric oncologist in the room. And so again, we've got, you know, a full company meeting and we're sitting around and we had somebody sort of interview us about the process and what was going on and the things that we found differently. And it was the reminder to people that, yeah, a lot of times when even in the biotech and pharma field and you're thinking about cancer, you're thinking about adult cancers, but to not forget about the kids. That I feel like, again, I'm a little bit biased and that the company that I'm at has done that, but it was even an introduction to some of the people who were in the room that know, you know, this is something that we've been thinking about and something that we've been executing on already. Um, But in also talking to our colleagues at other places, I think we're having a little bit of a shift probably within the last year or two where there are more of us who are now starting to make this transition and live this kind of dual role. But in a way, it almost needs to be more people there sitting around the table to have the discussions. Because you're right, a lot of it is education 
of what's happening and what's going on. And if you're sitting in a room with a lot of adult oncologists and a lot of key opinion leaders who are adult oncologists, it's not going to necessarily dawn on them that there are mechanisms of actions of these drugs that might actually be appropriate in a pediatric setting because it's not their wheelhouse. It's not what they do every day. It's not what they're studying and what's, what's, what they appreciate. So there might be times when, sure, when you're talking about maybe some of our neuro-oncologists who also happen to see AYA patients or some of our sarcoma physicians who also happen to see um, AYA patients, but when you're really talking about truly, you know, younger pediatric diseases, it's just not part of the conversation if you don't have the people in the room uh, to be able to do that. What are some of the products? I don't know if you're allowed to talk about your own company. <laughs> but are there things you're developing that we ought to be interested in or watching out for in the future? Um, so I will have to say there's probably a fine line of what I can talk about <laughs> from a company perspective. Um, we do have a website that people <laughs> can go to. But what, what, what I, is your website? Um, uh, www.merrimack.com. Um, but what I can say is that uh, we're a company that's divided into two different groups that's looking at both signaling inhibitors as well as um, liposomal chemotherapeutics. Um, For our audience who doesn't understand what the liposomal part of that means. Oh, so basically taking um, chemotherapy agents and putting them almost in like little soap bubbles um, to be able to have them uh, be active really at the sites of disease and then potentially uh, to be able to last longer once they get there uh, with the hope of had, being able to have increased anti-tumor activity but decreased overall toxicity to the rest of the body. Um, and I will have to say that I, I am exceedingly proud of our company and the fact that a lot of these agents have uh, roles that are directly applicable to a pediatric population, and we are actively investigating that, um, not only from an IST perspective, but also from a preclinical perspective as to being able to do that. And so um, for me, it was a, it was a great choice. Uh, for my colleagues who are going out to other places, it's actually nice to see them in roles and positions, be they in big companies or small pharma companies, where again, they're bringing that pediatric perspective in. And I think kind of one person at a time, um, we, we hope to make Change a Change the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great that you're doing that. Um, it's, it's good news for all of us, I think. We all have the same goal, bring things to kids quicker. Uh, so hopefully, your story can bring some hope to our listeners. Any other last questions or comments? Actually, one other question for for uh, those of us who are for our trainees, for those people early in career. When you're in an academic setting, you know there's a, a sentiment of collaboration, of, of sharing information, but still we have to be protective. You don't want to get scooped, so you don't want to lose a publication, you don't want to lose a grant. You have that extra concern of uh, it's IP, and this is actual, tangible, IP, financial source, intellectual, intellectual property. property. And so, how much does that weigh in when you go to to scientific meetings, when you're talking to other scientists? Do you feel muzzled? Do you feel that you can you can uh, have conversations, or do you feel like I want to talk with you, but I got to get this MTA in place first? <laughs> Great question. So. It depends on the context. For stuff that's already been publicly disclosed, 
there are conversations that can happen. I think in any situation, for both an academic end and an industry end, when you're really getting into nitty-gritty and you're talking about going back and forth, having um, the correct paperwork and documentation in place is always a good thing. Um, I think it protects both sides, but I also think it allows you to be a little bit more kind of on the table up front, be able to really kind of delve into the science a little bit more because both parties sort of feel like they're protected. Um, I think the conversations can go either way, where they can be exceedingly general, like, you know what, I really, really, really think we should chat. (laughs) 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 To the, oh, (laughs) (laughs) oh, you know, we've already got the appropriate stuff in place, why don't we set up a time where we can do those things? And and I think it goes back and forth. Um, I will have to say, on both ends, um, it's been great, and people are very, uh, people have been okay, make sure that, you know, we get the right stuff to sign, or, oh, you know what, we've already got one in place with your company, or, oh, we can do conversations about really general things, but if it looks like it's going to be something a little bit more specific, let's go down that pathway. So so I think it, it, it sort of crosses um, crosses all of those elements, um, but I think to protect both sides, but not really more so for protection. It's really sort of sitting down talking about the science, like really sort of being able to get in-depth and involved. And when you have all of those pieces in place, it then makes the next set of conversations actually far more straightforward. Okay, you know what? That looks like it's going to be really, really interesting to us. Or you know what? That actually might not be great for my team, but I actually think for this team, or, or even sometimes not even within your company, but it might be that you know that a colleague is doing something else, and it's like, you know what, I don't know that you necessarily need to be having conversations with me, but I know that this company is doing X, Y, and Z, and you might want to speak to so-and-so. And so really being able to use, I think, what we would normally do in an academic setting within an industry setting, too, but again, within those boundaries of, ah, <laughs> hold a thought, we can have this conversation in 48 hours. <laughs> That's better than six months. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for being here. Appreciate it. We'll be happy to read anyone's emails during a future podcast. And everyone's laughing because we never get any emails, but I still hope you have <laughs> In the early days, we used to get some. And we discuss any comments or questions. If you send us a note at twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast. Thanks to Lisa Fuhrer for our, being our sound engineer today. And also thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Lutwinski, uh, our, our executive producer, and also um, Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, the founding co-directors. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.